you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have one available, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We have been moving steadily through the book of Exodus, and we are now in the midst of the Ten Commandments, just to remind you of the context of, of where we are. Exodus 20 chapter, or, uh, chapter 20 verse 14. Satan is doing everything he can to kill your soul. I mean, the the Bible, again, is very clear about this. Satan has come to still kill and destroy. And I would say that in my own experience, both as I have walked alongside many other Christians In my own experience, with my own struggle with sin and my own faith, one of the sharpest, most deadly weapons in the arsenal of Satan is that of sexual immorality. There is no doubt that we live in a sex-crazed, sex-obsessed, and sexually confused world. It comes at us from every angle. I would say... I mean, you could scarcely go a day without sexual temptation being thrown at you, not to mention what our own uh, sinful flesh produces. So what hope can a Christian possibly have against such attacks? How are we to keep ourselves from getting sucked into this vacuum of sin? And if we've gotten sucked in already, how can we get out? That is what we want to learn from God's word today because Satan wants to kill your soul. The the weapon that he is using maybe to the strongest degree is that of sexual immorality. And yet God's word is truth. And Jesus said, the truth what? It will set you free. That is a beautiful reality. And that is the hope we walk into this sermon with. I'll just tell you, I I get it. If this sermon uh, topic makes you uncomfortable, if it makes you feel guilty, if it makes you feel hopeless, I get it. But God's word is full of hope. God's word is full of hope for us who don't feel like there is hope in our struggle against sin. Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That is a beautiful reality. And so we come today to this seventh commandment. And it says very plainly, it's actually only two words in the Hebrew. (laughs) The entire seventh commandment in the Hebrew is two words. You shall not commit adultery. Now, as we think about this, just before we even get going, we need to investigate a little. How does the the Bible want us to interpret this commandment against adultery? Is it limited to the strictest definition of adultery, that of a married person engaging in sex outside of their marriage? Is that all that is uh, being commanded against here? Well, the short answer is no, that is not all. The seventh commandment is not limited to a strict definition of adultery, as though that were the only sexual sin that displeases God and harms our soul. And I I do just want to tell you just some biblical support for that. Uh, In in the rest of the law, that's uh, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and and even the rest of Exodus here, God will continue giving the law. He will conclude the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are a foundation for the rest of the law that he will give to the people of Israel, to his people. And there, in the rest of these laws that are given, God will also forbid incest, homosexuality, bestiality, sex before marriage, and even looking upon another person's nakedness. And all of that was pointing back to this seventh commandment. And so even from the Old Testament, in its direct context, 
it's clear that the strict definition of adultery is not all that God has in mind. But what's most revealing and gives us the most confidence that it's not just strict adultery that we're talking about is what Jesus, God incarnate, said about his very own law. Jesus is God. This is God giving the Ten Commandments. And here's what Jesus has to say about this seventh commandment. This is Matthew 5, verses 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Does that sound familiar? I can turn the PowerPoint back one. (laughs) You shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but... I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what would the point Jesus is making is we think of the, the act of adultery as this extreme example of sexual immorality. But Jesus is saying, no, even over here on the other side of the spectrum, even just this small heart, eyes, mind, lust toward another person, that is is adultery in God's eyes. God is just as serious about a sinful about sinful eyes and mind as he is that of an adulterous body. So we might define the full scope of this commandment by the way the Bible tells us to interpret it as a complete prohibition of sexual immorality of all sorts. We should neither seek nor find sexual gratification outside of that of our own marriage covenant if we are married. If we are unmarried, then we abstain from all sexual gratification. That is what this command is commanding us to do. Now, I just wanted to make sure we we knew why I'm talking about sexual purity and sexual immorality in general there. That's what this command is talking about according to the Bible. But it's interesting in thinking about sexual purity and again, having uh, battled this uh, sin myself, having walked with many, many, many others battling this, this sin and watching lives and families get destroyed, churches get destroyed, there is a question that has often come into my mind. I say, why did God create humans as peculiarly sexual beings? Now, I'm not trying to question the wisdom of God. It's an honest question, okay? Because I I look around and I see sex crazed, sex obsessed, sex confused. I see all this destruction and chaos and heartache. And I say, wouldn't it be easier if like we just didn't care about sex sex so much? Like, wouldn't it be easier if that just weren't a thing at all for humans, if we didn't even have sexuality and sex? Why? give such a strong desire for sexual gratification? Why has God given that strong desire to humans? And why has God given us even the hope of this height of intimacy and pleasure in sex? Again, this is just an honest question for me. I say, why would God even do this if all it's gonna do is constantly trip us up and be a tool, a weapon in the hand of Satan? And so here's what we need to do first, that, that this was helpful for me, and I hope it will be helpful for you in the fight for purity. Number one, this is in your, uh, your bulletin, by the way, the purpose of sex. We need to understand the purpose of sex, and I see that it is this, expecting intimacy and pleasure in God. Expecting intimacy and pleasure in God to give us that expectation is the reason God gave us sexual intimacy, sexual desires and pleasures. Now, I I should start by pointing out what the Bible makes obvious literally in the beginning. God did create humans as sexual beings with sexual desires and all of that. In the beginning, God created not just uh, mankind, he created what? Male and female. And God gave them sexual desires and God gave them both the physical and psychological drive to express those sexual desires. 
We should not be embarrassed or ashamed that we as humans have sexual desires because God created us as sexual beings. And this was to be uh, fulfilled in the context of marriage, male and female marriage. So that's just the foundation we need to have. Like this isn't something that the fall brought upon us that, oh, now we, we, we are sexual beings. But why did God create us this way? And I just want to mention this. Being sexual beings, having the desires, having the ability for these things is completely unnecessary from a biological point of view. You say, well... How would we not have just had Adam and Eve then for the rest of forever? You know, they have to reproduce, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God could have made humans reproduce without sexuality, without sex. In fact, he did that with vegetation, right? God made the plants, they, they grow up, and yet they are not sexual. They have no sexual desires nor abilities, and so God could have made children sprout from our arms like fruit sprouts from a tree branch. He could have done that. Remember, he was working with a clean slate. He had the creative power, the creative ability to make us however he wanted. I mean, I don't know what it would have been like. You know, maybe the, the pollen fairy would go around and pollinate. I don't know how this all would have worked out. God could have done it that way. He really could have. There's no biological or creation reason that we are sexual beings outside of the fact that God chose to make us sexual beings with a purpose. And so what is that purpose? I want to, again, I, I say they're expecting intimacy and pleasure in God. Here's what I want to show you. God created humans as sexual beings with sexual desires and a huge capacity for the enjoyment of sex in order that we might expect and seek even greater intimacy and pleasure in him. A far greater intimacy and pleasure than mere sex could ever provide. There are many ways I could show you this biblically, biblically but I, I want to just give you a couple uh, evidences um, quickly. The first thing I just want to point out is that God throughout the whole Bible, calls his people his bride. We haven't had that occur yet here in Exodus, but this will pick up uh, later in the Old Testament. And, and oddly enough, in the context, it will usually be God talking about Israel, his covenant people, being his bride in the context of their unfaithfulness. And he will talk about them as his bride, and he will say that they are committing what? Adultery, not just sin, adultery, because God has brought them into a very real marital covenant relationship. You could say God likens it to the marital covenant relationship. God calls his people his bride. And this reality becomes even more plain in the New Testament. I, I hope you recognize this. Uh, Ephesians 5, every single wedding you've ever been to, right? <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands. As the church submits to Christ, husbands, love your wives as uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We are called the bride of Christ. If you are a Christian, you are a, the bride of Christ. Jesus is your groom. We'll see at the end of the Bible, Revelation 19, this, this amazing new transition, transition into the new age will be kicked off by what? the marriage supper of the lamb. This will be a celebration of our union with God. Now, I, I want to be careful here. I don't want to be misunderstood. I am not saying that we will be sexually intimate with God. That is not what I am saying. What I'm saying is that God has created humans, uh, male and female. He has created them with uh, th this capacity for, for sexual uh, pleasure and desire and, and all of this. And there, it is a reflection of our relationship with God. Now, the second thing I want to show you is this. 
You say, well, okay, well, if we're not going to have this sexual relationship with God, then how, how is it a pointer to God, to seeking God, to finding our pleasure and intimacy in him? The second point is this. God created our desires and he is able to feel, fulfill them. Have you ever thought about that? God, God commands us against things like sexual immorality. Oh, I can't have uh, sex before marriage. I can't, you know, be promiscuous. I can't step outside of uh, marriage. You know, all these things. And we say, man, God uh, just, you know, has given me the, these desires and he's just going to crush them just to watch me squirm. That is not the way God works. God has created us with desires that, yes, can be fulfilled uh, in physical, uh, natural ways, but God has created desires and he is able to fulfill all of them, including that of sexual intimacy and pleasure. You know, Jesus said a startling thing. The people were startled by this. Uh, the, the Pharisees were questioning him and saying, hey, this person's had all these different uh, husbands and they've, they've all died. You know, who's, who will be her husband when she gets to heaven? And Jesus says this, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to that heavenly age, and to the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. And people are like, <gasps> Jesus is saying there will be no marriage and therefore no sex in heaven. You think about other religions, Islam in particular, what is their reward? You get your number of virgins when you, you get to, to heaven so that you can gratify your earthly sexual desires. And, and this has the, the Muslims excited. They want to do good works and things to earn more virgins. And by the way, it gets more twisted than that. I'm not going to mention all that is their hope. Uh, they, they, they have more of their pick of, of what their preferences would be and they just get more and more twisted. But for Christians, our desire is not that in heaven we will have what this earth can offer us. Our hope in heaven is that we will have there what this world could never satisfy. This is our hope in heaven. Jesus says there, you notice, he says, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. He doesn't say those who get stuck in heaven and, and have to be celibate for their, no, he considers this to be a great honor, a great blessing to be in this place called heaven where there is no marriage and there is no sex. Why? Because there is a greater intimacy and pleasure that will be found in God. This is a wonderful reality. And, and this is my point, the pleasure of sex, the way God created it, sex was never the point. God was the point to show us, hey, there is, you just think about it this way. God is giving us a category for a strength of desire, a category for a closeness of intimacy, a category for a height of pleasure. Whether or not we even experience those things, we know about them. And that makes us say, wow, if God created me with those desires and if God is able to fulfill those desires to an even greater degree, then I want to seek more intimacy and pleasure in God. That is the reason we are sexual beings. God created us, created us with these capacities and desires for a far greater reason than for them just to be fulfilled here and now. Now, I say that, <laughs> but is this intimacy, this in, uh, intensity of, of intimacy and pleasure in God, is that something that's only for heaven? Or is that something that's for right now? My answer is yes. It is for uh, heaven. There will be a day when we will be purged of the, uh, the, the encumbrances of sin that we now carry. That's why you don't enjoy God as much as you could right now is because we still carry around our sinful flesh and our sin broken mind. But there will be a day when we will be pure. We will be like him because we will see him. And there we will find our fullness of joy 
in him. But the Bible doesn't teach that this intimacy and this pleasure in God is only for the future. Uh, John 15, uh, John 15, 9 through 11, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That's intimacy. This is the offer Jesus is giving. If you trust in me, if you'll obey my commandments, you'll abide, you'll remain, you'll feel, you'll experience God's love. That's intimacy. Then he says this in, in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That is pleasure. Jesus does offer intimacy, close intimacy with the God of the universe, the one who created you, the most glorious being. God gives you intimacy and pleasure and there is access to that right now if we will seek it in him. But again, this, this joy will be full right now, like we can have the most possible for our earthly, fleshly ability, but there will come a day. There will come a day that we are fully removed of the sin and fully in God's presence. And there you see on the bottom there, Psalm 1611, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what we have to look forward to. That doesn't sound like a downer that there won't be marriage in heaven. I know I'll still hang out with Hallie in heaven. We just won't have the same type of relationship. In fact, we'll have a far better relationship as we both point our eyes to Jesus, worship him together. I'm excited about it. Because again, I, I just want you to think about it this way. If, if, if sex and the, the intimacy and the pleasure, if all of that is but a hint and a foretaste and, and a shadow isn't the reality going to be that much better? You think about a hint. I was thinking about this, like, you know, what does that even mean, a hint? Today's uh, Rosalind's birthday, and we could have, she got a bicycle. Um, we, we could have given her hints as to what her gift was going to be. We could say, well, it's uh, got things that spin on it, and it's shiny, and she, she might say, okay. And so that's cool. It's fun. That's like, that's kind of, that's nice. That's an enjoyment that she would get a hint. But isn't the actual bicycle better? The reality is so much better than the hint. <laughs> and this is what God offers to us. This is what the hint was pointing to is, okay, there, there's this enjoyment. There's this fun thing here, but it's actually pointing to something far greater. And by the way, this should be, a, a, a huge impetus for our purity, knowing that it will not rob us of, of the true joy that God offers. And this should be a huge comfort to those of you who are unmarried and who knows how long you'll remain unmarried and, and you'll, you'll need to remain faithfully pure. But the fact is, sex isn't the point. Sex isn't the ultimate goal. God is and you get him. If you but pursue him, you get him. You get what really matters. You get the reality instead of just the hint. This is wonderful. I love how C.S. Lewis put it, put it this way uh, there up on the screen. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And I don't want to improve upon C.S. Lewis, but I was made for another world where God is. Because he is what satisfies our desires. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is a wonderful reality. This is the plan and purpose of God. The reason he created us and wired us the way that he did was so that we might find greater and deeper intimacy and pleasure in him. This is a wonderful reality. This is very good news. But you may be wondering at this point, if this is God's good purpose for sex and sexuality, that it drive us to, to greater intimacy and pleasure in him, then why isn't it working? 
I mean, do we, why do we even have a command in the Bible like you shall not commit adultery if it was supposed to lead us to greater obedience and intimacy and worship and enjoyment of God? Why would we even need a command against sexual immorality? And this leads us to our next and very sad point. Next in your notes there, the perversion of sex, extinguishing intimacy and pleasure in God. God created us as sexual beings to point us to him, but sexual perversion has turned it the opposite, not just another, but the opposite direction. What was meant to lead us to God, sin, Satan, our flesh, the sinful world system has pointed in the opposite and destructive direction. We have hijacked God's good tool of sexuality and used it for our own sinful purposes. This is powerfully portrayed, by the way, in Romans 1, uh, verses 18 and following. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, but I'll just read some selections from that passage. You kind of get this idea. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I'll just mention they suppress the truth about God, his glory, his greatness, his worthiness to be worshipped and enjoyed. And they suppress the truth about what is good for us, about God's good plan for sexuality. I say they, I'm a part of this <laughs> fallen folk. Suppress the truth. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. That word impurity is almost always used, speaking of sexual impurity, that Greek word. He uh, gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, their, their sexual bodies among themselves. Because they, why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the merely earthly things, rather than the creator. Following along here in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What was meant what was designed, what was infused in us as a good gift to point us to God, we said we don't want it because we don't want you. We don't want to find our deep desire for intimacy in you. We don't want to have our pleasures fulfilled in you. We are going to find our own way here on the earthly plane. And so I'm going to step out of your purpose, your plan for sexuality. I will use my body however I please. Thank you, you won't be God of me. This is the perversion of sexuality, the good gift, the good tool, the pointer of God we have chosen to point the other direction. It points us away from God. And here are the results. This is best case scenario, okay? This, this first result of the perversion of sex. Best case scenario, sexual immorality will obstruct your enjoyment of God. You notice in Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for, for they shall see God. What does the impure, what does the perverted in heart get their their view of god our view of god is obstructed when we pursue when we cultivate an impure heart it obstructs our eyes the eyes of our heart from seeing god 
John 15, 10, 11, we already read these, but I just want you to think about the reverse. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So let's do that conversely. You don't keep my commandments, such as how to use your body, and you don't have the intimacy with God, uh, knowing and abiding in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. When we pursue sinful pleasure of any kind outside of God's good plan and purpose, we might find some momentary pleasure. We might even feel satisfied for, for a few minutes or whatever, you know, like th that we say, ah, that's what I was looking for. But then you will be empty. You will recognize that the fruit that you have eaten was rotten and putrid, and it only served to destroy your soul, to destroy your happiness. Because it hides your view of God. It removes that joy of God from your heart. Again, this is the best case scenario for a Christian walking in a season of sexual sin. Their view of God, their enjoyment of God is obstructed. But even more serious, we need to understand this. Surrender to sexual immorality will send you to hell. So that first category was someone who they're, they're fighting, but there's just this season that they're just struggling. They're, they're fighting and they're not winning. <laughs> Their view of God is obstructed, but surrender to just say, okay, I'm going to make peace with sexual immorality will send you to hell. Again, I'm not preaching and the Bible certainly does not preach perfectionism this side of heaven. We will all struggle. We will all slip. We will all have times of failure. But if we are not fighting, if we are not fighting, if we surrender, we prove that we were never truly a Christian in the first place. Why? Because Jesus is not Lord of your life. Because you are still very much a slave to sin and you're saying, okay, I'll just stay a slave. I'm going to continue being Lord of my life. That is not a Christian. And so I'm not saying you're losing your salvation. I'm saying you never had salvation if you surrender to sin. Say, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to hide it from people. I'm going to just keep this sin going. And the Bible, again, is very plain about this. This isn't just like my opinion. It's up there, uh, Matthew 5, 29 to 30. This is right after Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your eye, um, you've committed adultery with her in your heart already. He picks up in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In the mind of Jesus, God incarnate, there are only two paths. The path of those who fight and those who surrender and go to hell. This is a life or death, an eternal life, an eternal death problem. If we surrender to sexual immorality, you will go to hell. And I want you to remember, by the way, we say, okay, well, I, I'm not out uh, carousing. I'm, I'm not, you know, committing adultery. I mean, a, a little bit of lust here and there, a little porn here and there, a little letting my eyes linger, my mind linger. That's not a big deal. No, remember, this is Jesus talking about this going to hell thing is in the context of him saying, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, with lustful intent, you have committed adultery with her in your heart already. Jesus is saying there is no degree of sexual immorality that is okay. If, if you, you surrender to, to, to lust of the mind, it's the same as surrendering to adultery and fornication and all these other things. 
So what are we to do? What are we to do? Satan is hurling this spear of sexual immorality at us. The world wants us to believe it's okay, it's normal, we should applaud sexual immorality. And our flesh says, yep, I want that. <laughs> I mean, just that's the way our flesh is. We, we, our flesh desires sin. So what do we do? Romans 8, 13 puts it well. I, I love the way it puts this. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That is both a strong warning for those of us who are tempted to just surrender into sin, to, into sexual immorality, but that is also a great encouragement for those of us who will continue in the fight. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, over and over again you put to death the deeds of the body, no matter how many times the temptation comes up, you put it to death again. No matter how, how many times you slip and fall, you repent and you turn away from it and you get back on the sin-slaying path, you will live. That is a beautiful promise, one that I need for my heart, and I know so many of you as well need that promise. If you will fight, you will live. Fight by the Spirit, you will live. Now that's a principle that you need to fight. We all need to fight, but I do want to get a little more practical. How can we, practically speaking, turn from sexual immorality and to purity? This is number three in your notes. The purification of sex this is what we desire. The purification of sex, engage intimacy and pleasure in God. That is, instead of allowing the vacuum of sexual immorality to, to suck you in, turn around and run after God. <laughs> That's how you keep from getting sucked into the vacuum of sexual sin, is you turn away from it, and you run to God, away from the sin. I, I hope you understand, you can put up a hundred different practical ways of fighting sexual temptation in your life. You can say, okay, I'm going to ditch my stupid smartphone. You know, it's, it's tempting me or whatever, and so I'm going to ditch it. You can say, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to only have my computer or my TV where other people can see it easily. I'm going to keep away from those people that I know dress provocatively or always flirting with me or something. You know, you, any set of rules you could make, get guardian eyes on your computer, you know, those are all good, but they won't be enough. Because... Merely abstaining from sexual sin is not the point. The point is God. The point is pursuing intimacy and pleasure in God. And so the goal isn't just that we be pure for purity's sake. The goal is that we be pure so that we can see, know, and experience the God of the universe. So please cut off your hand Tear out your eye. Do the practical measures that it takes to keep you from sin, but that won't be enough. You must run toward God as you run away from the sin. And so I want to give you three very practical ways that you can run to God even as you flee sexual immorality. They're going to sound too simple, but I promise you, if you do them with a heart of faith, that God will, will work in you as you work out your salvation, you can know sexual purity and you can know deeper intimacy and pleasure in God. So my first one is this, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Psalm 119.9, I, I put it up there. How can a young man keep his way pure? Almost like the same question we're asking. How can I possibly keep from getting sucked into this? How can I keep from ob obstructing my view of God? How can I keep from surrendering to this sin? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And here's the thing. God's word, you, you can't just like wear it in your front pocket and that guards you. It doesn't work that way. 
God's word is absolutely powerless in your life if you are not ingesting it, reading it, hearing it as often as you can. Meditate on it day and night. That is how you become like a tree planted by streams of water. It doesn't happen any other way. Uh, trust me, I, I've made all the excuses as well. I, I'm busy. I don't have time for it. There are parts that, are, that feel more boring in the Bible or, oh, I've read it all before. God's word is impotent unless you open up its power by reading it, studying it, meditating on it. How can a young man keep his way pure, young man or woman, by the way? By guarding it according to your word. And I just wanted to remind you, you are seeking not only to abstain from sin, but you are seeking intimacy and pleasure in God. So when you open your Bible, read it with a view to see and know and experience that God Look for his glory. Look for his infinite power and might. Look for his mercy and grace. And you will fall in love with this God. You will know intimacy with him. And this will keep you from being sucked into this vacuum of sin. Secondly, again, I, I know it's simple. Pray and ask. Read your Bible and pray. It's almost like we could teach this to children in a song. <laughs> Read your Bible and pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. I know we taught it to, to elementary age children, but this is for us. Read your Bible and pray and ask. Not just God bless my day today. Say, God, my heart is so easily turned away from you. My heart is so easily inclined to pursue intimacy and satisfaction in ways that you do not bless, that you do not honor. God, would you help me? God, would you give me a greater intimacy and pleasure in you so that I won't desire so strongly this intimacy and pleasure and sexual immorality? God, would you do it? You see the, the verse I put up there, James 4, 2, you do not have because you do not ask. That's a pretty plain statement. Maybe the reason you can't get victory over this sexual immorality, maybe the reason you don't experience intimacy and pleasure in God is because you're not asking God to do it in your heart. These are spiritual realities that we are utterly incapable of working ourselves. That is, again, why uh, Philippians 2 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. We need God to work both for us to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is, to give us the desire and to make it a reality in our lives. We work, and part of our work is to, to pray and say, God, do it in me. And by the way, some of us, some of we are, are, are saying, okay, I actually just want to want purity. I want to want a greater pleasure in God. Pray to him about that. Say, I'm struggling to even care about how uh, grievous this sin is and how it's robbing me of my joy in you. I, I struggle to even care. Pray to him about that. God, help me to even care. Your heart has become calloused. And what we need is God to soften it. Just to, to help us to feel the weight of our sin, to help us to feel the weight of his glory so that we will seek and pursue him instead of giving in to sexual immorality. The third is this. Get accountable in community. Read your Bible, pray and ask, and get accountable in community. I put up there Hebrews uh, 3, 13 to 14 Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What's the answer? But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Do, do you see that? Sin is deceitful. Our hearts can, can get hardened towards God, again, calloused towards God. Yet God has given us community. 
one another to exhort and encourage, to, to tell the truth and to point us in the right direction. We must come into community. I mean, notice the, the, the opposite there is uh, be hardened by the deceitful, deceitfulness of sin, to fall away from the living God. That is the alternative to accountability and community. And you can't be exhorted and encouraged away from sins that you cover, right? <laughs> if people don't know I'm struggling with it, they can't exhort me and encourage me to fight that fight of faith. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Will it be embarrassing if you tell someone else your struggle with sexual immorality? Probably. I mean, it has been for me. With times I've shared uh, with, with people my struggle and my failures, it is embarrassing. But I'll tell you what, it is not nearly as bad as having my, my view, my eyes, my heart obstructed from enjoying God. And it is, it doesn't even uh, do anything to the prospect of hell, which is where ultimately surrender to sexual sin leads. And so it seems worth it to me to face a little momentary embarrassment that uh, they got to know that I'm a sinner like them. A little momentary embarrassment that way we might pursue eternal life. And by the way, the way Jesus defines eternal life is that they might know you and whom you have sent, right? That, that is experiencing eternal life is experiencing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. This is what we are pursuing. And again, the way God has wired us to do this is to guard our heart by God's word. Read your Bible. To pray and ask God has promised that if we pray in his will, he will give us the, the, the requests we have asked for and get accountable in community. If you try to fight for sexual purity alone, you will most likely fail. This is God's word. This is what God has for us. That, that Yes, it is a dismal situation because sexuality is such a powerful temptation to sin. But flip it around. And you can see that it is a powerful motivation to run to the foot of the cross where our sins are forgiven, to run to the foot of the cross where we are transformed continually by beholding the glory of God so that we might find greater intimacy and enjoyment of him. It is a powerful thing, sexual desires, but it is powerful both ways. And so I encourage you, fight the fight of faith, fight for sexual purity, fight to know God, to enjoy him better. I do just want to end by uh, telling you the men here, we kind of, we have a, our men's group here at Poplar Springs. Uh, they take this so seriously that, that here's what's happening. Starting this coming Saturday morning, June 10th, from 7.30 to 9 a.m., the men are going to meet here at the church and pursue sexual purity together. This will happen uh, every other week after that for at least four weeks, and it will be a powerful opportunity to dig further in God's word, to pray, and to encourage one another, to, to foster this accountability in community. And so I just want to encourage you men, you don't have to be entrenched in sexual sin to come to this. We've already talked about it. Every single human will face sexual temptation of some sort. And so, and so like this isn't like this is some, oh, I don't struggle with that. No, everyone struggles with it because everyone is tempted towards sexual temptations. And we all need greater intimacy and pleasure in God. And that is what the men will pursue together. So men, I invite you, starting this Saturday, 7.30 to 9 a.m., come pursue purity with us together. And all of us have access to God's word. All of us have access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ in prayer. And all of us have access to one another. So all of us can avail ourselves of God's tools to fight for purity and fight for pleasure in him.
So let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for this gift of sexuality. Thank you for even a hint of the degree of intimacy and pleasure that we can experience in you. Thank you for the way that it was intended to point us to you, the one who can truly satisfy our hearts in ways that sex never possibly could. And God, we ask you to forgive us for the ways we have walked off your path, away from your good plan. Forgive us for allowing our hearts, our eyes, our minds, and even our bodies to use our sexuality in a way that dishonors ourself and dishonors you, Lord. We are deeply saddened at the harm our sexual immorality has caused both to our own souls, to our families, and to uh, the watching world. But God, you are merciful and gracious. You showed us that on the cross, that you are merciful and gracious to murderers, adulterers, liars. God, you are merciful and gracious and you bid us to come to you for forgiveness and for transforming grace. So God, would you help us to take this seriously, as serious as Jesus did in Matthew 5. Even lust is like adultery. Cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. Lord, help us to do whatever it takes to turn away from sexual immorality and to chase after knowing and enjoying and worshiping you more. God, we are infinitely thankful for your word. We're infinitely thankful for your warnings and we are excited about what you are going to do in our hearts. I pray that you would do it all in the name of Jesus, amen.